from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. My name is Kevin Johnson. I've been sentenced to death. I've grown. I'm a better person. I'm caring. I think I could be more of a help for people alive than dead. Kevin Johnson killed a Kirkwood cop as a teenager. Now he's making what likely is his final plea to avoid execution. The special prosecutor on his case now wants the Missouri Supreme Court to put a halt to his death sentence. That effort will come to a head in the next week. And in recent weeks, we've also seen a six-figure verdict against a local Mercedes-Benz dealership. And we've seen the city of St. Louis beat back a lawsuit that challenged its ban on giving sandwiches to homeless people without a permit. Our Legal Roundtable is here today to help us make sense of all of these matters. And today, that panel includes Eric Banks. He is a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis, and he is now an attorney and mediator at Banks. Thanks, Law. Eric, welcome. Thank you. And today we're also joined by Mark Smith. He's a former associate vice chancellor and dean at Washington University. He taught law courses there for 30 years, and he's currently teaching a law class at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center in Pacific, Missouri. Mark, welcome back. Great. Great to be here. And last but not least, making her legal roundtable debut is Erin Luker. She was previously a public defender for St. Louis County and a prosecuting attorney for the state of Missouri. She's now at the firm Sedeh Harper Westoff, and she focuses on employment law. Erin, welcome. Great to be here. So we have a lot to talk about today, and I think that needs to start with a life-or-death case. Kevin Johnson, we heard his voice earlier, he's scheduled to be executed by lethal injection next Tuesday, November 29th. Now, the Missouri Supreme Court just set oral arguments in this case. It could halt Kevin Johnson's execution on Monday. That is just one day before he's set to be killed. Now, that hearing comes thanks to a special prosecutor assigned to the case. He says racial bias is why County Prosecutor Bob McCullough went for the death penalty in Johnson's case. He notes that a white defendant who killed a cop was treated differently. And he's using the state's new wrongful conviction statute, which allows prosecutors to intervene, to try to halt the execution. It's not quite that simple, though. This is a very complicated thing that got us to this point. Erin, I'm hoping you can just help us explain how we ended up with the Missouri Supreme Court saying, okay, this is the very last minute, but we're going to have a hearing on Monday. Absolutely. Uh, So the Supreme Court is considering whether or not to stay the execution to provide more time for the hearing involving the special prosecuting attorney. So the special prosecuting attorney was appointed uh, only recently and only had about a month to evaluate the entirety of the court file in this case, which included 12 boxes, 31,000 pages of documents to review. Uh, And they filed their motion asking for the court in St. Louis County to set aside the verdict and judgment in this case. However, procedurally, uh, the court needed to hold a hearing in which all parties had an opportunity to present evidence, including the attorney general's office. And when you say the court needed to hold a, a hearing under the statute, it says this hearing shall happen. Indeed. 
Okay. The word shall being the critical one. Shall, it means you have to do it. Right? Okay. So that didn't happen here. Is that what the Missouri Supreme Court is looking at? Like, do we now have to do this and, and pause this execution? What the Supreme Court is going to be looking at is whether or not to grant more time. And if more time is granted, then the special prosecuting attorney will have an opportunity to uh, writ the decision already made by the judge in St. Louis County who denied their motion based in part off of a lack of time in order to hear this case. So, Mark, do you think there's any chance that the Supreme Court could say, yeah, we need to put a stop to this execution? This can't happen on Tuesday. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, it seems like um, it seems like, you know, the law requires this hearing and the judge has said they need time to brief it. So we should do that. Now, your listeners might be saying, well, why is this all happening at the last minute? You are asking the question right. I've been wondering. And, and I think here's the things you need to remember. That this, the, he was convicted, I think, in 2007, so a long time ago. And, but this law, the law that allowed a prosecuting attorney to kind of question a case where they think there's innocence, wasn't passed till it uh, became effective, I think, August 28th of last year. Of this is a very new law. Very new law. And Johnson's lawyers filed um, a request for a special prosecutor on October 12th. So right after, the, you know, within six weeks, they read the law they and they do a filing. I, I think that's timely. Um, and, then, uh, and then on December um, uh, 1st, they amended. They did some other uh, stuff. They... And, and the prosecutor, so Wesley Bell's office could be the one to investigate, but, but they realize they have a conflict because I think one of Johnson's former public defenders is now working in the prosecutor's office. So they have to f- appoint a special prosecutor. And, and that's harder than it sounds like because you have to get somebody who doesn't have a conflict. Apparently, if you do this, you cannot take, I think it said, any criminal cases the whole time you're doing this. Mm. So... It, and I think some people turned them down. So they found this guy out of Kansas City um, who did the work. As Aaron said, he did it in six weeks' time. And, I mean, he wrote a 50-page um, document that I thought was well done. And, I mean, I don't think he was sitting around. And, and he had um, – in, in his filing, he talks about trying to interview – people in the prosecutor's office. And McCullough just refused to talk to him, apparently. Hmm. This and is the former prosecutor who former was in charge of this prosecution of right. Kevin Johnson. And, the, and then the assistants who were, who were more intimately involved with the case said, hey, you have to talk to Bob McCullough, and I'm not going to tell you what we did and what we didn't do. So, so there was um, – I don't think this was a case where it was – People were dragging their feet or anything. They, they, mm-hmm. and, and as Aaron said, I mean, you, you've got he, – he talked about boxes and boxes. There was this study done by the, this professor out of the University of North Carolina that looked at McCullough's office generally and had some findings that suggested race was playing uh, an issue. And, and so, um, so I think, you know, you've got this kind of finding. And, and what, he, what he said was um, that – You know, he said this looks inappropriate. It looks like race was used. And and so you would hope before you take someone's life, the Mm -hmm. state takes someone's life, that you would 
you would do this the right way. And and one last thing. You would consider thing, these claims. Yeah, and one last thing because, you know, and I'm not a death penalty person, but I mean, the special prosecutor noted this was a horrific crime. Nobody is suggesting that this wasn't. I don't. Uh, I don't think anyone's suggesting it, that the crime didn't happen mm-hmm. or that it wasn't horrific. They're just suggesting the way the jury, in particular, and the way this prosecutor office picked which cases to take to the death penalty and which ones not is done uh, adversely impact, impacts black defendants. Aaron. I, I think it's important to note also that the, the approach the St. Louis County's prosecuting attorney's office has taken in reviewing these types of cases, they've created an entire unit called the Conviction and Incident Review Unit, one of a, one of a kind within the state of Missouri. Uh, so this isn't a, an incident where the St. Louis County prosecuting attorney's office were dragging their feet. In fact, they informed the Supreme Court of yeah. Missouri that they were seeking a special prosecuting attorney at the time in which this execution date was set. Now, that doesn't seem to have been taken into consideration, or certainly there isn't evidence that that was taken into consideration at the time of the execution date being set by the Supreme Court. Eric, what do you make of that? It seems like the Supreme Court could have avoided this whole sort of crazy rush at the end if they had just paid attention when they said, hey, slow down setting this date. You know, we're going to have a special prosecutor coming in and and looking at this. Just just pause. Absolutely. What's what's the rush? Yeah. So when the Supreme Court looks at this on Monday, are they going to be looking at the merits or are they just looking at does the law say we have to or somebody has to hold this hearing? I guess it would be that the circuit court has to hold this hearing. Yeah, does anyone Judge have a Ott, sense of yeah, yeah? Does anyone have a sense of what question that they're going to be trying to answer on Monday? I, I think I think I mean, his findings, E.E. Uh, e. Keenan, I believe, is the special his name. prosecutor. Right. Yeah. And his finding was the evidence clearly and convincingly shows improper racial factors played a substantial role throughout the process of both the prosecuting selecting defendants, uh, seeking the death penalty, and selection of juries, jurors, jurors. And so I think the judge then needs to consider this and see if we have to redo the, the death penalty phase or, you know, he's asking for the decision to be vacated and, and referred back to uh, a trial court. Okay. However, I think the issue in front of the Supreme Court is first whether to grant that time. And mm-hmm. to make that decision to grant time for a hearing, they will have to explore some of the merits of the claims that uh, are before were before Judge Ott. Uh, however, I don't believe the Supreme Court is actually going to rule regarding those merits. So the merits right. as to whether or not there was racial bias influencing uh, this, uh, this decision in this trial is not before the Supreme Court. However, they will weigh those factors when making a determination on Monday. Deciding whether Judge Ott should spend a lot of time looking into those questions, that's what they have to weigh the merits of, is whether it's worth putting a ton of time and focus into this on the circuit court level. Absolutely. Okay. And whether the law requires it. And, yeah. and I mean, it seems to me the law requires it. <laughs> well, we'll see if the, the Missouri Supreme Court agrees with Mark. Now, you mentioned there, as we were talking, this issue of jurors particularly black jurors, being struck, um, prosecutors trying to get black jurors off of juries. This is something that I've grown interested in as a journalist, because as I've been looking at these death penalty cases, it seems to be such a common factor in these cases. The prosecutors are saying, we're going to find ways to get black jurors off these, these juries because they're not necessarily going to be sympathetic to what we're doing as prosecutors. Now, it's illegal 
to strike jurors for their race. This goes back to a case called Batson. Eric, people still seem to be able to do it using something called peremptory challenges. Is this basically a workaround? Yes, it is. And for that reason, I believe that peremptory challenges should be eliminated and you should have to have calls for striking any jurors because it is too easy to come up with subjective factors. This person didn't laugh at my jokes. This person looked at his shoes when I was talking to him. Um, Just all kinds of ridiculous reasons. And when you say that's a reason, that's a reason a prosecutor could offer. This person looked at my shoes when I was talking to them, and they could get away with striking that black juror. Well, yes. And they have to have somebody raise the challenge before the prosecutor gives the reasons. Or the defense attorney, too. So if you submit your preemptory challenges and nobody questions them, then they'll stand. But when somebody questions, then the onus is on the person offering the challenge to explain why. So so just so your listeners understand, you know, you have four cause challenges. So if there's a jury pool and juror number two knows the police officer who was involved or is related to the defendant, well... You can't have that person yeah, on a jury. you can't have that judge says everyone agrees. That, that, and, but you get your preemptory challenge and you get a limited number and it's just like, I don't have to tell you why. I'm just getting rid of these jurors. Yeah, I'm picking these. And so if I pick all five of the African-American jurors, then you can't do that. And then you say, well, why? Why did you pick this particular juror? And, and so uh, apparently uh, there's a case, uh, one of the cases or one of the articles talks about it. Uh, prosecutor said, well, because this person uh, was a mailman. It's a postal um, worker. Postal worker, right. And I don't, I, I've got a bad, you know, history with postal workers. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what that's about, but. Um, well, what it might be about. I mean, uh, what is, I see in my reporting is a whole bunch of St. Louis uh, County postal workers are black. African American, right. I mean, that, that's something where you feel like the judge should step in and say, hey, right, whoa right. there. You have a bad feeling about postal workers. Aaron, is that something judges are likely to take on and, and call the bluff? Absolutely. So the standard for uh, providing a reason needs to show facial validity. What does that even mean? It's a neutral reason, a reason which would give somebody uh, an ability to judge and believe that you had a reason that was neutral, not based off of race or a protected class, in order to uh, strike this person. Now, Eric stated, you know, uh, some some silly reasons that have been provided in the past. But I will say that our courts have been very responsive to some of these uh, reasons that seem pretextual in nature. And uh, we have had good cases in the last 10 years from higher courts that say, no, we believe based off of all of the circumstances that that was not a facially valid reason for striking that juror. Mm. Uh, The other thing to consider, though, is especially when we talk about if we can eliminate all postmen from jurors based off of uh, the fact that they work for the government, is uh, the the fair cross-section of jurors being selected as part of this master list. So each county creates a master list, and that is dictated based off of law we have in Missouri. But the list is created based 
based off of uh, government records like driver's license records, voter registrations, and personal property tax lists. Do those lists themselves inherently create a biased mixed pool Mm -hmm. based off of who is most likely to have a personal property tax record or a driver's license? And there's been studies that show that this does have an impact, especially on socioeconomic factors. So we're asking to to have a fair cross-section of the jury, which is selected generally from something that might uh, exclude people from our community, and then from that process, uh, have a a race-neutral or gender-neutral decision then from the actual jury pool. It's complicated, but thankfully we're given a lot of discretion to our judges. Hmm. It's complicated. In some ways, I can't help but wonder if it's broken. I mean, Eric, you mentioned you think a good reform here would be just getting rid of peremptory strikes entirely. That means you could only strike somebody for cause? Yes. And that is no reflection on our judges. Sure. Because I think our judges do a great job of enforcing the law and making people give race-neutral explanations for their strikes. But I just think that, as alluded to before, the system is inherently flawed. You know, Arizona has moved away from there saying you don't get peremptory strikes. You have to have a cause. I don't think of Arizona as necessarily a progressive bastion, no, say this a is a point. former resident. Um, are, are you worried there could be a bad side effect of going that route? No, I, I, I'm, I'm Nothing fine to with lose. That. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think it was an article you did, Sarah, about preemptory challenges. I mean, imagine you're the judge. You're put in a very difficult position. Sure. Because if I say I want to use my preemptory challenge on this African-American juror, and, the, and then the defendant says, you know, well, what's your basis? And I say, well, I, I got this postal issue. And then you, judge, have to come in and say to me, Mark Smith, I don't believe you, Mark Smith. Yeah. I think it's racial. And, and then I'm going to be like, Sarah, are you calling me a racist? I mean, and it puts you in a very difficult position, I think. And we all know each other. So, so yeah, I, I kind of agree with Eric. I'm, I'm fine with getting rid of uh, preemptory. And Aaron, I see a big disagreement here. Whoa, you're, your you face, your reaction to that. You want to keep these peremptory uh, strikes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So peremptory strikes uh, exist in all types of cases involving criminal and civil trials. And it provides an opportunity for a party to uh, strike a juror who may have survived a challenge for cause. And when we're challenging somebody for cause, we're really looking specifically at whether or not they can be partial or impartial in a, uh, a sitting for that particular suit. The problem is that it is easy to survive a challenge for cause. And so you may have a juror who is, based off of their own answers and questions, uh, going to already come into a trial disfavorably towards your party. And that does not guarantee due process. That is not something that is a fair cross-section. Uh, and so I think if, if we go into the extreme route like Arizona took, certainly there needs to be a substantial need for more leeway and broader use of jury selection conducted by the attorneys. And that's not something we necessarily practice right now in Missouri. So so Aaron, in part, does employment discrimination suits from the plaintiff side. Back when I was practicing, I did a defense side. So as a juror, I loved like a juror who is a manager, you know, because and I suspect Aaron is not a big fan of those types of folks as jurors. And and even though Aaron's not saying they can't be biased, that they're, they're, she's not saying they're biased. She's just in her her mind knows this person is going to think more like Bark's client, mm-hmm. and I'm not as keen on that person. And 
So I get where you're coming from. Yeah, but, yeah. I, you know, I'm coming from, I remember watching the O.J. Simpson case where they spent like months trying to hand choose the perfect jury. Is that really what our criminal justice system should come down to is who has the more expensive experts in jury composition? Well, but you don't get to do that. I mean, you know, in most cases, it's not like in the movies. The judge like says, I'm going to ask the questions. Um, you tell me, but we're going to move this along because I want to well, get things. Judge Ito uh, didn't do that, Mark. Yeah, judge Ito, right. <laughs> that's what most people are basing it on. Judge we Ito. are. Uh, we're talking to our legal roundtable today. We do need to take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. about the Kevin Johnson case. He's the Kirkwood man uh, who is uh, ordered to be executed on Tuesday if the Missouri Supreme Court does not intervene. You may have questions or or comments about this case. I'm going to open the phone lines. 382-TALK. You can send us a tweet at STL on air. If it's a legal question, we're going to try to get to it. If it's a moral question, we might not have the right panel for that. No insult to my fine panelists, but (laughs) (laughs) theologians have a lot of thought on this and they are not with us today. Now, there's another layer um, to this Kevin Johnson case, and this deals with his daughter, Corey Ramey. They are very close. Um, She was very young when Kevin was sent away to prison after killing this Kirkwood police officer. She says she wants to be there to bear witness to her father's execution. She's not allowed to do that. It turns out this comes down to a Missouri state law. You have to be 21 years old to witness an execution. Corey Ramey is just 19 years old. The ACLU has now filed a lawsuit on her behalf. Eric, what do you make of this lawsuit? What I make is that the law needs to be changed. That law is Section 546.740 of the revised Missouri statute. So the prison administration is just enforcing the existing law. But that existing law was written in 1939. Oh, wow. And the last time it was revised was 1995. So if you're old enough to serve your country in the military, you're old enough to watch an execution. And what about, I mean, I think one of the ironies of this case is that Kevin Johnson himself was 19 years old when he committed this act that now has him sentenced to death. And so the state is saying, hey, you did this at 19, you can be executed for it. And yet your daughter, who's now 19, can't be there in the room to see it. Am I right in seeing a, a kind of a weird parallel here? Yes, it does. the law does not make any sense at all. So, Mark, in this lawsuit, the ACLU cites the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment, saying that this is what should give Corey Ramey the right to be there. Are these applications of these amendments you've ever seen before? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't thought about that, and I... Um, I think this is a pretty unusual case. Um, so I guess her, I think her argument was it was association. Um, was yeah, that, the First Amendment, apparently, I didn't even know this about the First Amendment, my favorite amendment. We yeah. have a freedom of association. Yeah, in yeah. That? so she should be there with her father. Um, 
I, I don't know. I mean, this is, a, I think, a pretty uh, strange area of the law. It's, yeah. It doesn't come up a lot. But I think, uh, I think it's probably more powerful as a just, you know, as a news item to say, to make people think about this. I, yeah. I, I'm not sure the state of Missouri is going to change their opinion. And mm-hmm. and I would imagine, you know, who knows if, if this, because of the stuff we were talking about before the break, if this would be maybe the death penalty phase would be retried, retried or reconsidered by, you know, with Wesley Bell making the decisions, maybe they would decide we're not going to go for the death penalty. We're going to just do life in prison. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, something that has changed so much since this all happened back in 2003 and then the trial in 2005 is we now understand so much more about juvenile brains that a 19-year-old isn't fully developed in the way that somebody is when they're 26 years old. And and part of this case and, and part of the argument is with particularly with a white defendant, they were uh, uh, McCullough's office asked for uh, mitigating factors, and and this Johnson was a, was a white defendant who killed a cop. This guy Trent right, Forster, exactly. yeah, Save, right. And 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 Johnson wasn't able to do that. And there was issues of mental health, and and the fact he I mean he led he had a horrible childhood where he was in foster care, and he was, uh, was I think his parents were uh, killed early when he was really young, so. Not saying that excuses the behavior, but sure. perhaps um, advocates for a different type of punishment. Well, certainly, I think it's worth noting that in the very first trial involving Kevin Johnson, uh, there was a stalemate within the jurors regarding the consideration of murder in the second degree. Mm-hmm. And so in Kevin Johnson's case, there was, I believe, a confession involved in which there isn't necessarily a question of fact regarding whether or not he was involved in the death of this police officer. But there are a lot of legal factors involving the intentionality of it. Right. Uh, there are mitigating factors that jurors are supposed to consider. And it sounds like they considered those factors uh, it, it, to, to even to the extent of being uh, being held up on the idea of murder in the second degree. Certainly, if a new juror, jury was impaneled and considered a murder in the second degree and found for that, then death would no longer be an option. Mm. So, so even if Wesley Bell's office considered pursuing the death penalty, the question before the jury may be the same with a completely different outcome. Hmm. It is interesting. And Wesley Bell is on the record saying that he does not believe in the death penalty. He's not going to do that in mm-hmm. any case, not just in this case. So, well, this case is, is um, boy, there's just so many legal issues here. We're going to know a lot more next Monday. Maybe not by Monday. Maybe they won't make their decision by Tuesday. <laughs> but we will know a lot more I think um, his execution Tuesday. is set for 6 o'clock on Tuesday. On Tuesday. I mean, yeah. I, can you, I mean, just to imagine that um, you're going to have they're, – they're telling you on this Thanksgiving weekend, yeah. Monday we're going to let you know one yeah. way or the other. This could happen. This could not happen. It's what's hanging over his head right now. It's, right. it's just – it's unimaginable. Let's switch gears here, talk about a case that I know several people on this panel find a little more humorous. Uh, we could maybe use a little uh, break from, from the more serious stuff. Back in 2018, a pastor and his associate were giving bologna sandwiches to homeless people in downtown St. Louis. A police officer cited them. They were allegedly violating a city ordinance requiring a permit for the distribution of, quote, potentially dangerous food. Bologna sandwiches here. The two men filed a lawsuit challenging the ordinance. The district court issued summary judgment for the city. And now the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed. Eric, are you surprised the Eighth Circuit is is coming down in favor of the city saying, yeah, you can regulate people trying to feed the needy? 
Yes, I am. But I think that what's in play here is the dis well the schism, the disagreements between New Life Evangelistic Center and the downtown business community, especially along Washington Avenue. So I think that the police officers were looking for any excuse to harass the ministers at New Life Evangelistic Center, and they found one with this ordinance. And now the court has said you can do this. Um, what do you make of this ruling, Aaron? Well, certainly uh, the question before the court was more focused on the First Amendment. Uh, so governments can regulate what's considered inherently expressive conduct. And this is what was being argued by the plaintiffs or the defense uh, with handing out sandwiches to the needy and to the poor. So there can be regulation of that even without violating the First Amendment if there is a substantial government interest. So in this case, St. Louis City said uh, they are preventing the spread of disease and provided some evidence that may or may not uh, be compelling to everyone regarding whether or not they are preventing the spread of disease. However, looking at the existing ordinance, I think that calls into question some of these concerns raised by Eric. For example, uh, the ordinance allows serving foods with limited preparation like hamburgers and hot dogs, but doesn't allow sandwiches that contain meat and poultry or fish. So is a hot dog a sandwich or what's the difference between a sandwich and, and, with meat and a, and a hot dog uh, between a bun? One would hope a hot dog has meat in it. I mean, <laughs> right. that's what I've always kind of assumed, but you're right. You can't be too sure. Yeah, right. And this is a First Amendment thing because they're saying this is the practice of their religion. Exactly. There, there's an idea that they are pursuing and in pursuit of that religion by providing to the homeless. Mm. And I think we also need to see if the city's position is, in fact, that there's a legitimate interest in preventing the spread of disease. What other actions are they taking involving <laughs> the homeless? Yeah, are they taking any? <laughs> uh, or does this go more towards p um, political motivation and strife, as pointed out by Eric? So I know that this year we've had a lot of um, issues involved. Involving uh, homeless uh, encampments being boarded up, uh, homeless encampments being uh, essentially shut down. Uh, and so what, in fact, is the city of St. Louis doing to protect the homeless, as they say they are doing by pursuing uh, enforcement of the ordinance? Yeah, I mean, if you talk to people in the provider community, uh, they are livid at how the city is, is handling everything related to homeless people living within the city. And yet the Eighth Circuit it didn't really even seem to look at that. Like, is this hypocrisy? Does the city have a pure motive? That didn't come up. Now, Dave Rowland, who's been a panelist yeah. on this show, he really is somebody who cares deeply about religious freedom. Um, he is the attorney on this case. He says the men are going to appeal the case. He says they're either going to the Supreme Court, which would be their next step in the federal system, or they're going to go through the state court system. Mark, if you had to give Dave any advice, what, what would you do if you were him? Oh, I think I, well, the Supreme Court, you know, they only take about 100 cases a year. The so odds are not, not good for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, no, here's what I was going to say. I mean, this is just an unfortunate situation. I feel bad for the city. You know, I live in the city and, you know, homelessness is an issue that that hurts the city. And, and there are some resources, maybe not enough, but um, sometimes the, the folks don't want to take advantage of those because for whatever reason. And and I'm very sympathetic, but but, you know, uh, and and new new life is a little bit different, but you know, over by the River de Pair, we had all these tents set up, mm -hmm. and people and there's uh, the, under on a bike path they had set up, and and it's 
that's not a good thing. But is the answer to criminalize feeding them? No, it's not criminalizing homelessness. Right. No, you're exactly right. But what do you do when you do have facilities and somebody says, a homeless person says, I don't want to take advantage of those because I'd still like to do some drinking on the side and you're not going to let me do that. Um, and I understand that, that, you know, but does that mean they get the right to set up a tent on the bike path down by 55? I'm not sure. Yeah. Aaron? Well, and to be cl- clear, there are several compelling reasons involving a, a decision going into whether or not to take advantage of available uh, homeless shelters. Uh, yes, substance abuse is certainly one thing that may f- factor into that decision, but also the fact that there is crime, that there is incidences involving violence, mm-hmm. uh, that there are individuals who have extremely uh, mental, mentally health yeah. issues that would make it difficult for them to comply with rules within these shelters. Uh, so this is this is more complicated than we don't want to feed homeless, more complicated than we shouldn't shelter them, uh, but certainly, I think, compelling, and, and I hope that we see a positive response from St. Louis yeah, City. Yeah, and this is, I think, your point about the mental health issue, that's a huge factor sure. in this, and, and I don't know what the solution is. Welcome back. Our legal roundtable is in session with three top attorneys. Aaron, you had a big victory earlier this month. This was in St. Louis Circuit Court in the city. You sued the owner of the Mercedes-Benz dealership on Hampton Avenue. Two former employees claimed they'd endured a hostile work environment. And I know you have to be somewhat careful about what you say about this case. Appeals have not been exhausted. But can you tell us the conduct at the heart of these claims? Absolutely. So uh, Marianne Sade is, uh, and Ben Westhoff are both partners in the law firm, and they've been working with two plaintiffs for several years. So this is one of those cases that, unfortunately, as a result of COVID, went longer than intended. Uh, but in this case, we have two plaintiffs, two women, one of them is also a person of color. And so uh, our claim was that there was a hostile work environment based off of uh, race discrimination, gender discrimination, and retaliation as well. We also brought a claim involving constructive discharge, uh, and the jury found uh, in favor of both plaintiffs on all four claims. So constructive discharge. When I think of discharge, I think of the gunk that comes out of my eyes when I have pink (laughs) eye. I know everybody wanted to have that image in their head as they head into Thanksgiving. What is constructive discharge? Uh, So in constructive discharge, we ask jurors to consider uh, whether or not the circumstances involving the employment were so hostile or the harassment so poor, so bad that uh, a an employee had to leave or was forced to leave. So in this case, we had uh, two plaintiffs who resigned as a result of that harassment. And so jurors are are asked to consider whether that the working conditions were so intolerable that an employer could have reasonably foreseen that an employee would resign as a result of those actions. Hmm. That's interesting, Eric. I feel like we hear a lot about people getting terminated and then they'll file a lawsuit over getting ter- terminated. People who are sort of compelled to quit, um, they can also end up with a pretty good legal claim. Yes. Yes, they can. And I believe that when an employee files a charge, the employer should treat the employee better and not worse. 
because the employee, if he can prove that it was retaliation, that's a whole different cause of action. It feels like retaliation is where so many employers mess up. Like somebody files something and then it's like, I am going to just come down hard on this employee. That seems to always backfire. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, As Eric said, you're going to get in terrible shape. Here's what I found interesting about this case. You mentioned it was in state circuit court. Mm -hmm. Most employment discrimination cases occur in federal court. And so there was some very good lawyering on the plaintiff's side (laughs) that they managed to – because. As a former defense lawyer in these cases, I didn't want to be in, in St. Louis City State Court. I wanted to be in federal court for a variety of reasons. Jury pool and just judges move things along and the case law is better. And so so they, they did not give the defendants an opportunity to remove it to federal court, which is to take it there. Um, and the two ways would be if there's a federal claim, so they only – alleged state claims, and then they were lucky that they didn't have complete diversity of uh, 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 diversity uh, people different places. So if this had been an employer that was only in Illinois, they could have got it removed. But anyway, it was a it's a very smart lawyering job, and this is a big this is a big win. Um, One point eight million. I mean, in employment discrimination cases, you don't get this kind of awards typically. This is a big deal. And I'd also add, regarding retaliation, to Eric's point, the Equal Opportunity Commission uh, (EOC) will has a guidance provided and posted publicly for employers on what to do if there is a complaint, and it addresses specifically uh, how to avoid the appearance of retaliation. And I think that's where a lot of employers may get hung up on is is not providing those safeguards in place in order to avoid any appearance of retaliation. So I'd highly recommend uh, for employers to make sure they're familiar with those guidelines, especially after this verdict. Upper upper management needs to come in because if you you sue us um, before you've left employment and I'm your immediate supervisor, you're, you know, the way I read it is you're saying I'm sexist or I'm a racist or whatever, and I can't have that. So um, and so management's got to come in and say, just simmer down. This is not about you. We want you to follow these rules and you lay them out and just you got to treat her the same way and, and we got to move this along. Hmm. Something else I found interesting, the Post-Dispatch did a pretty good write-up about this verdict. And they reported that the defense called witnesses that ended up confirming the women's accounts. And so the defense thought these were going to be witnesses that would help them say, oh, no, 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 they were not harassed. And they ended up, the testimony that was drawn out from them, ended up proving just the opposite. Eric, you've been involved in a number of cases. How do you safeguard having a witness you think is favorable end up turning on you and then put the nail in the coffin? You don't. It's just a risk that's inherent with jury trials or trials in general. That a witness can go south. Yes. And you're rolling the dice any time that you don't settle the case. This is why Eric always says settle. This is true. You should always settle. I agree with that. But, I mean, you should should know all your witnesses' story. I mean, you don't want to have any witness coming up and not knowing what they're going to say. So you depose them before taking their testimony under oath. You ask them all the difficult questions. Um, You... You know, you you got to know what's what's happening. You can't go in there and just say, well, let's see what they say. Yeah. Aaron, what's the key to getting them to go south on the other side? Marianne Sade. 
I should say, Marianne has been a panelist on this show, and boy, is she just a firecracker and such a good attorney. Absolutely. So I think to some extent you can prepare any witness and and, and prepare them for cross-examination, but ultimately you are putting a layperson, nine times out of ten, up on a witness stand in front of a public courtroom, and they are under an immense amount of stress. And so I always talk about the reptile brain. When you're, when you're under that amount of stress, your default systems kick in. Uh, and so it becomes harder to regulate against uh, those types of answers or those types of questions uh, that are being thrown at you. And so when you have an effective lawyer who can effectively cross-examine, that's when good things happen. <laughs> good things or for your side. Things. Yeah, yeah. bad things, right. <laughs> that's why Eric says you always yeah. want to settle the case. Aaron, leave us with a takeaway. What can we learn overall from this case and from your $1.8 million victory? Uh, certainly, I think it's encouraging to women and uh, to people of color that in St. Louis City, they heard a lot of evidence from both sides and they decided to believe women. So many times uh, in cases involving any type of discrimination, it boils down to he said, she said. Uh, very rarely do you find a, a smoking gun, if you will. And I think it is very encouraging to uh, all people out there, all employees out there, uh, that we have jurors who are willing to believe you and find uh, in your favor and with punitive damages, hold those companies accountable so that hopefully they make better decisions in the future. So another labor and employment case was in the news this month. This one involves Rockwell Beer Company. It has two popular breweries in the city. They were sued by the federal government. The Labor Department alleged that Rockwell improperly kept tips from employees by letting its former director of hospitality take part in the tip pooling arrangement. Mark, how big of a no-no is that? So so as a farmer bartender, that's how I put myself through law school. I'm very sensitive to this. The way it works, you know, you have to be paid the minimum wage. But if you're in an, at a job where you get tipped in Missouri, uh, your your employer can pay you. I think it's five fifty eight an hour, and then the tips. As long as your tips get you up to, I think it's eleven fifteen now in Missouri. But the tips oftentimes are pooled, uh, but they can only be pooled with other tipped people. So if you put in cooks and dishwashers, they they don't typically get tipped. And so they that would be a violation. And here they put in like kind of a management type position. Another kind of interesting twist on this tip thing is, you know, if you're doing as a, a bartender, if I'm also that my boss tells me, and I want you to come in on Saturdays and clean the parking lot. Well, that's not tipped work. And so I can only have a percentage of that work. But if I do it like before work, well, then, you know, it's not tip work. But if I cut lemons while I'm making drinks, it is my tip work. So it's a really complicated area. Yeah. So bottom line is, you know, if you're an employer, you got to make sure your attorney has told you what to do and that you're following the rules because you can get hit with, um, you know, you if you're not paying minimum wage, then – you can get sued for that, or the federal government will come in. Boy, I mean, you. to see the federal government come in on this, you know, there's so many injustices I see all around me that the federal government is, is happy to ignore. But it sounds like they take this issue of, of wage theft and, and people helping themselves to a tip jar, they take this seriously. They certainly do. And to get to the point where a lawsuit was filed, that behavior was mighty egregious because the, Fed, the Department of Labor is going to try to settle these types of charges ahead of time. As a result of not settling this, 
Rockwell Beer Company is liable to double the damages. Wow. So if they owed, hypothetically, $25,000 in back wages, um, in, improper calculations of overtime, they're now on the line for $50,000. So you think the feds would have tried to settle this before they got to the point of, of filing this lawsuit? They always try to settle it. Why would Rockwell not try to make this go away? This is going to get... Hubris. Hubris. Erin, have you seen this? I mean, you do labor and employment that an employer might be like, yeah, whatever, we're not going to deal with this. The next thing you know, the feds have smacked you with a lawsuit. Uh, absolutely. And I think it is very encouraging to see the Fair Labor Standards Act in in action. Uh, it's encouraging to see enforcement of that. I think that more employees need to be aware of their rights, as Mark pointed out, that they are due a minimum amount of money. And that is a guarantee. Uh, and so holding and, and making a show of of employers being held accountable to making sure that people can make a living wage is a great step forward. So is it too late for them to settle now? No, no. Until the jury comes back, it's never too late to settle. Okay, so your advice, you want them to settle this thing. Well, I don't care, but um, that would be the prudent thing. The prudent thing, You know, we had another case um, recently with the the guards, uh, the the correctional officers uh, at the prisons. And so I've been going out to the prisons because I'm teaching my class there. And I mean, there they got in trouble because the guards have to go through all these hoops before they, you know, before you just they don't get on show the clock. Up. Yeah, yeah. you got to come in and you got to get your radio and you got to go through the security and, and the prisons were trying not to pay them for that. And wasn't that like a hundred million yeah, dollar it went verdict? On forever. It was huge. And you got all these correctional officers at all these places. And what's that term, dining and duffing or something like that, where well, uh, um, it's, a, it's a term for getting ready to go to oh, work. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you have to get paid for your dining and duffing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. like this precedent. I think yeah. we should bring this over also to journalists. I yeah. need to and, get And, and these are people who duffing. are not making a lot of money. Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, m- many you know, high-paid jobs, you're exempt. You don't even have to do this. So yeah. these are people who should, should be getting the money that they're owed. So in our final few minutes here, I do want to mention something of great interest to lawyers across the state. Missouri has a new attorney general. Eric Schmidt is soon to join the U.S. Senate. He's apparently deposing Anthony Fauci today. But as soon as he gets done with that, he's going to join the Senate. Governor Mike Parson announced his replacement this morning. Andrew Bailey was Parson's general counsel last year. He'd served in a deputy role for two years. Mark, is this the equivalent of choosing Harriet Myers for the Supreme Court? Um, Going back to the Bush years yeah, here. Yeah, I remember her. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's a Supreme Court. I think that's fine. Um, I don't know um, this guy. It sounds like Aaron kind of knows him, but um, I mean, it's the governor's prerogative. And yeah, he, he, gets, seems he as, gets to pick. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. Aaron, is there anything wrong with this guy? <laughs> um, I am. I was excited to learn that Andrew Bailey was uh, being appointed. He served as a prosecuting attorney. He's worked uh, also for the Missouri Department of Corrections. Um, he was essential uh, with uh, working with me, in particular in getting a, a grant throughout the state for crimes against children that was um, given uh, by the governor uh, to several prosecuting attorneys' offices and agencies in order to support the pursuit of those crimes against children. Um, in my dealings with him, he's been very level-headed uh, and even-handed and goal-driven. And I think that that's something we need to see with the Attorney General's office. And I'm excited to see what he does uh, in the upcoming years. So the Attorney 
General's office in the state of Missouri has been involved in a lot of national, very prominent right-wing type battles in the last couple of years. Eric, do you think we could see just a different focus coming out of this office now that it's somebody who doesn't, at this point, hasn't suggested any ambitions um, to be a senator? I certainly hope and pray so. <laughs> yeah. You want a lawyer who's kind of boring, who just follows the law, does what, and and doesn't get a lot of, like, let's sue these people. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. We should mention, however, that Andrew Bailey does say that he is going to run for this position in two years. He was asked that. And so maybe he is an aspiring politician as well. Um, but, you know, maybe somebody who will focus on the And there were other people state. who were hoping to get this appointment. A whole bunch yeah. of people. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if any of them run. Um, Mark Smith, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was great. It's always fun to do this. And Mark is a former associate vice chancellor and dean at Washington University. Eric Banks, attorney and mediator at Banks Law. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Aaron Luker, today Harper Westoff, um, attorney there, making your legal roundtable debut. Aaron, you were awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I hope we can get you back again. Always. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.